Well, our scripture reading for this morning is found from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing our series on biblical justice, and, and I hope by now, if you've been with us um, for this journey, that you have a clear understanding, a, a clear grasp of God's heart for justice, and that, how that is one of the central themes of Scripture. It's central to the Old Testament. We see it everywhere in the law, in the prophets, in the wisdom writing. And it's central to Jesus' life, to his ministry, and his teaching as well, from first to last. Now, last week, Matt preached on justice, looking at it through, through how it's at, at, at the heart of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom. So the justice, justice isn't something that we add on to the gospel. It's something that is inherent within the gospel itself. And, and Matt preached on, 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 on the gospel and justice, looking at Jesus' first words of his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. So that's how Jesus began his public ministry of sharing the gospel, by talking about the kingdom of God and it's justice that comes with it. Well, here in our passage in Matthew, Matthew we're, we're looking at Jesus' last public words of his ministry. And this uh, passage is Jesus' teaching about the last judgment. Judgment, uh, of course, uh, comes from the legal world. And so once again, here we are in the realm of justice. And throughout Scripture, when it comes to the last judgment, the last things, there, there's a hope and a warning that go with them that one day, one day God is going to set the world to rights, that he's going to finally right every wrong, that he's going to wipe away every tear, and so the hope for, for the day of the Lord is that God is going to at long last vindicate the righteous. But there's that warning too, that on that day God is going to punish the wicked. 
That God would, in Jesus' words right here in our passage, separate the sheep from the goats. And on that day, as is obvious from this passage, you want to be a sheep and not a goat. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. But Jesus here in our passage says that the, the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards judgment. It bends towards that moment when we will have to stand before our Lord and face a reckoning. We will have to wait to hear the judge announce the final verdict. Now, the moment of awaiting a verdict, it's filled with anxiety, isn't it? I still remember back in seventh grade when we watched live on television the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial. It was one of those big moments. You knew it was a big moment at school when when the teacher took the TV, you know, that was strapped on the cart and wheeled it out in front of your class and plugged it in. You knew something gigantic was going to happen. And so I still remember I was in seventh grade. The teacher wheeled in the TV, plugged it in, and we all children sat, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids sat transfixed on that screen to hear what was the verdict in the trial of the century. What was it going to be? And we all kind of thought we knew what the jury was going to say. Obviously, OJ was guilty. So we were going to hear them say guilty. Justice would be served. But as we were watching, I'll never forget hearing, hearing, you know, how do you find, how do you, the jury, find Orenthal James Simpson, you know, upon the count of murder in the first degree, the charge of murder in the first degree, and they say, not guilty. And, and, and I remember that, um, you, you know, we had a pretty diverse school. I went to Anthony Middle School, and all of the white kids were shocked. We could not believe what had just happened. And all the black kids in the class were celebrating and high-fiving with one another. And, and I, I, I don't have time to get into today what I think exactly about that moment um, in our country's history, but it seems to me that in my lifetime, at least, you know, not before or not since, has there been a trial like that, a moment like that, where we were all hanging on, on this one verdict, that we were all watching and listening. It felt like the stakes were so, so high. And I think perhaps maybe we'll face another moment like that um, at the trial of of Derek Chauvin. I think that's going to be another such moment, and uh, that fills me with dread. Now, I use that illustration because I think maybe then when we think about that moment, and, and some of you were not born for that moment, but if you lived through that moment, then you can, I think, maybe understand in some small way the stakes of the, judge, of the judgment that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. He is talking about the verdict that is facing us all when we're all either going to hear guilty or not guilty. Sheep or goat. And upon that verdict, we will face our eternal destiny. Now, the scene that Jesus uh, paints at the beginning of of this passage, it combines both, both the cosmic and the quotidian. The Son of Man, Jesus says, and here he is evoking uh, Daniel chapter 12, where, 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 where it talks about this apocalyptic image of, of one like a Son of Man coming. And, and so this, this, this cosmic imagery is of, of the Son of Man coming with the heavenly angels and all of their glory, and he's going to sit on his throne of judgment. So that's the cosmic. But then there's the quotidian. Jesus says that, that this judgment 
will be like humble shepherds separating sheep from goats. Now, this is uh, an image that's borrowed from the common life of, of first century pastoralism. Shepherds in those days, they would have grazed mixed flocked, which mean, flocks, which means during the day, you would have had your sheep and your goats just out there, you know, grazing together in the fields. But then um, when night came, shepherds separated the animals because the goats, they didn't have that nice, you know, uh, uh, wool, uh, wool blanket, uh, wool clothing sitting on them. And so the goats needed to be kept inside because they preferred that in order to stay warm, whereas the sheep preferred to stay outside in the open air. That's why it makes sense in, in Luke's gospel where it says that the shepherds, they saw the angels because they were keeping watch over their flocks by night. They were, they were outside. And so here Jesus is teaching the Son of Man is going to come in all of his glory, and it's going to be like separating sheep from goats. Here, his manner of teaching, really it combines who he was in his person. Fully divine, fully human, heavenly and earthly, sacred and mundane. And it makes his point to his audience. Just as the shepherds they know separate their sheep and goats at the end of the day, so the good shepherd himself at the end of history on the day of the Lord will separate humanity into those who will enter the kingdom and those who will not. And so when you hear that, the question lingers then. Upon what basis will we be judged? And Jesus' answer is this. We will be judged upon the basis of how we have treated him when he was hungry and thirsty, when he was a stranger, when he was naked, when he was sick, when he was imprisoned. How we have treated Jesus in those circumstances is the basis upon which our verdict will be rendered. Now here, a natural objection arises, especially if you're a good Protestant. I thought we weren't judged based upon good works, but by faith alone. So what gives? Are we saved by God's grace or by our own righteousness? Now, I want to affirm this, the central reality, the central truth that we are saved by grace, grace through faith. And that this passage, it, it doesn't teach a works righteousness or, or a works-based salvation at all. Nothing could be further from what Jesus is teaching here. Now notice first that, that, that the sheep and the goats are both completely unaware of how they did, not or did or did not treat Jesus himself with compassion. There's no sense at all that either were going around trying to do good works to, to earn their salvation as if such a thing were possible. When Jesus tells the sheep to go to his right hand and enter into the kingdom because they had cared for him, their response is one of complete surprise. Jesus says, you did these things for me. And their response is, um, when exactly did we do those things? So what we see here is the consistent teaching of scripture, particularly the New Testament, that saving faith always exhibits good works. These good works, these works of justice, are not a means of earning salvation. They are instead evidence that one is already saved. As this book of James says, faith without works is dead. The truth we see in this passage is that no heart that truly loves Christ can be cold to the poor and needy. You cannot love Christ without loving justice. You cannot believe in him without believing in the need to care for the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and imprisoned. 
I think an illustration makes this point clear, clearer than it already is. You know, I can say, I love my wife. I can say, I love you, Amy. And then if I ignore her, if I don't care for her, if I don't show her in any demonstrable way that I actually do love her, do I really love her? What does love mean if it doesn't play out in action in any way? It's empty. Those words are empty and meaningless. And in the same way, can we really say that Jesus is Lord? That we are saved by his death on the cross and resurrection and, and, and then and have changed nothing about our lives? And can we do that and really say that we have faith, that we really believe in him, that we trust in him, that we've given our lives and our hearts to him, that we love him? So Jesus presents uh, the last judgment as being based upon how we have treated him, which is confusing because the people hearing this teaching from Jesus, 99.9999 repeating of, of the sheep and the goats, have never met him personally. And the answer that Jesus gives then to this is that we have in fact met him in whom he calls the least of these. Jesus is telling us that he is present to us in the person of the least of these. And so if we want to see Jesus in the world today, we have to seek him out in the hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and imprisoned. Right? There's that, that, you know, I think it's from the 60s or 70s. Have you seen Jesus, my Lord? He's here in plain view. Take a look. Open your eyes. He'll show it to you. He's shown it to us right here. And Jesus doesn't simply say either that he's present in the least of these, but he says, in the least of these, my brothers, my brothers and sisters. And so in Matthew, this this term, Adelphoi, brothers, but it includes brothers and sisters as well, uh, it refers to believers. And so another implication of the passage is this, that genuine disciples of Christ will create new communities that do not exclude the poor, members of other races or ethnicities, or the powerless, and they will create communities that do deal with their needs, that include them and do deal with their needs sacrificially and practically. So here's the point. It's important. We can't miss it. We can't gloss over it. When Jesus says, you did it to me when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, that churches are not just called to, you know, minister to such people, No. They must also, those, the least of these, must also constitute the membership of the church itself. That's important. That's crucial. And so it's to the practical work of justice that we now turn, admittedly all too briefly. And the long list that Jesus gives to his disciples, it's really a comprehensive list when it comes to works of compassion, mercy, and justice. So first, Jesus says, you're you're to give food and drink to the hungry and thirsty. And that means emergency relief. There's that old saying, you know, teach a man to fish, he eats for a day. Teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime. Now that's true, and it's all well and good. But if the person that you meet is starving, if, if they're starving, you need to give them a fish before teaching them to fish. The ancient world knew famine, knew it all too well. And, 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 and to us in 21st century America, famine is, is a distant phenomenon. 
But there's another thing about feeding the hungry. It's, you know, direct emergency relief and aid to meet people's immediate needs. That is one thing. That's true. But when Jesus is talking about hunger, he's also talking about famine. And, 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 and true famine, the hunger that comes from famine, is almost always the product of a grave injustice. The reason that there's famine in the world today isn't that there isn't enough food to go around. Famine and hunger that results from it is, is always the result of corrupt and authoritarian regimes and civil strife that keep people from getting food. If you ever want to be depressed, uh, read about the uh, terrible effects that actually the Live Aid concert, that Bob Geldof, you know, uh, Live Aid, huge concert in the 80s. In fact, I think it was 35 years ago this past week. Um, Live Aid, you know, instead of hell, when helping hurts, that's a classic example. And the misery that was, was actually increased through that. And, you know, that was in response, a, a heartfelt response to the Ethiopian famine. But people were starving to death, to death because of the policies of the Ethiopian government, not because there wasn't enough food, or, you know, or relief to go around. So feeding and giving drink means, on the one hand, direct emergency relief and aid to meet people's, you know, dire immediate needs. And an implication is also that we work against corrupt and authoritarian regimes across this world that starve and abuse their people. Jesus then talks about welcoming strangers, and, and he's referring to what we would call immigrants and refugees. And Jesus says that they are to be given much more than mere food or drink. No, he says, he says they are to be welcomed in, which means inviting people who come from other places into our homes and lives. And so welcoming, it involves friendship, it involves hospitality, it involves advocacy, it involves providing for the basics so that people can pursue a new life in society. And, you know, we as a church have had some firsthand experience in this area when we, 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 we worked with our dear friends who are Kareni and, and refugees to this country from Burma. They're incredible people. I mean, just an incredible family. Uh, and, but we have been able to do our part to advocate for them when they needed it, especially uh, with their previous landlord who tried to take advantage of them. So welcome in the immigrant, the refugee Make a place for them. Advocate for them. Make sure they have what they need to make a life for themselves in this country. Now, Jesus talks about the naked and clothing the naked. And, and so here what he's talking about is the poorest of the poor, who we would consider the absolutely most destitute in, in society, close probably to what we would call homeless. We are to clothe them. And that means providing folks with the basic necessities for life. Clothes, yes. Food, yes. Shelter, yes. Our own Ryan Hoosier, when he, he founded the ministry of Blue Cooler, you know, that's an expression, a true expression, a beautiful expression of the heart behind this teaching. And then Jesus says that the sick are to be looked after, and the Greek word there is episkopos, and that's where we get episcopal from, and that's where we get the word bishop from. It's oversight. It's supervision. So the sick are to be, you know, looked after in that way. And this means that, that the ill and the sick are to be given comprehensive care until they're well. That's why, you know, whenever Christian missionaries have gone over the world, one of the first things that they've done, always found a school, always found a hospital. Bringing health care with them. Our own uh, Frank Dennis, Dr. Frank Dennis, was a missionary in Taiwan for many decades, and, and he founded one of the first hospitals in Taiwan. And finally, Jesus says that disciples are to visit prisoners. When I was in prison, you visited me, which means giving them comfort, 
It means giving them encouragement. It means giving them support so they don't lose their connection to the outside world. That's one of the things that happens when people go to, to, to prison. Is, is, is that their ability to function in the outside world, their connection to the outside world is, is severed. And it traps people in a cycle of poverty or of recidivism. Jesus says when we visit people, we are keeping that connection alive between the, 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 the inside and the outside. And when I think of people ministering in this context, I think too of our own Bridget Nelson doing Bible study fellowship with women who are in prison in Shakopee. So here we have this comprehensive list of things that Jesus says that we are to do because when we do it to the least of these, you know, my brothers and sisters, but that's not exclusive because we can do it to the least of these wherever we find them. I mean, perish the thought that we would ever use that as an excuse to not care, you know, for, 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 for people who aren't Christians. It's a both and, as always. But it's a special reminder that our communities need to also include those people whom Jesus refers to as the least of these. But we get this list upon which Jesus says we are treating him and our judgment will be based. And here's what Tim Keller says of this passage. He says, it's a remarkably comprehensive list. This is the kind of community that Jesus has said his true disciples would establish. Believers should be opening their homes and purses to each other, drawing in even the poorest and most foreign into their homes and community, giving financial aid, medical treatment, shelter, advocacy, active love, support, and friendship. And the point of all of this is, of course, not to earn our salvation, but as a sign that we are already saved. We're not doing it for ourselves, but as a natural outgrowth of our love for Jesus. Jesus tells the sheep that when they embraced the poor, they embraced him. And he tells the goats that when they neglected, ignored, and oppressed the poor, well, they were doing those same things to him. So what this means is that one's heart toward the poor reveals one's heart toward Christ. And at the end of the day, it's as simple as this. Anyone who has been truly touched by the grace of God will be vigorous in helping the poor. Because God has lavished his love on people like you and me. People who didn't deserve it one bit. But he did it anyways. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this vision that you have set before us to, 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 to how we can minister to you through our ministry to the world. And so, God, I pray that you would, you would convict us, that you would convert us, that you would call us to this work that is going on now. And God, I pray that we would not just be ministering to such people, but that such folks would, would be an integral part of this church community itself. And so, God, help us to look more like your kingdom in the constitution of our community and its compassionate action out in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.